how can we talk about death and dying? Nancy Duff, the Stephen Caldwell Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Princeton Theological Seminary, addresses this question in her book, Making Faithful Decisions About the End of Life. In this interview, she takes up the important and often avoided conversation about death and dying and points us in the direction of making the church a place where these hard conversations can happen. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Nancy, thank you for joining me here today to talk about the new book you've published. You've put out a new book called Making Faithful Decisions at the End of Life. Can you tell me what led you to write this book? I think probably two things. I come from a medical family. My father was a physician, my mother a nurse, my sister is a nurse practitioner, and other extended members of the family are in the medical field. So I was always interested in medical ethics, have taught a course on medical ethics for years. I'm on the ethics committee uh, at the hospital. And I think over time, my interest in medical ethics began to focus more and more on cases that had to do with difficult deaths. Mm -hmm. But that's the second reason. My grandmother would have been one of those people who had what I would call a difficult death. She was in the hospital dying, but she would sometimes raise up off of the bed with this horrendous cough, which morphine eased. But Mm -hmm. the time to give morphine would run out, and we would ask them, please give her more. And the nurses wouldn't give it off schedule because they said it was such an addictive medication. And I thought, that's absurd. She's never leaving the hospital. So I think personal experience and my family and academically being interested in medical ethics has led me to write this book. Nancy, in the introduction to your book, you note that society has come a long way in talking about death, but we still don't know how to talk about dying. Why do you think that's the case, and why is it important to be able to talk about dying? I think the reasons that we find it hard to talk about dying now are the reasons that have always been in place. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of dying. And so why would we want to talk about something that we're afraid of? Sometimes a little bit of superstition comes in, and we're afraid that if I talk about dying, then my death may happen sooner instead of later. We're afraid that our family members may not want to have this conversation with us. So how do you carve out time to talk about something that they may actually not want to hear? And there's all, there are always better things to talk about. We'd always like to put this off. But the reason why it's important, even if you have a living will, and especially if you don't, if you've never talked to anybody about your wishes, if your living will is with your lawyer and nobody knows about it, or you haven't talked to the person you named as your surrogate decision maker or other family members, then what you wrote down is not likely to make any difference. Somebody needs to know what your wishes are, what your values are, what you're the most afraid of, what you would most count as a good death or a good life up to the moment of death, so that when the time comes that you can't make your own decisions, somebody else will be making decisions consistent with what you want. So if you don't talk about it, you're most likely, more likely to die in the way that you don't want to die. You note in your book that between the 20th and 21st centuries, there's been a shift in how doctors view dying patients. Can you describe that shift and the impact it's had on end-of-life care? I would start by saying that there are still some doctors who never made that shift. There are still some doctors who want to treat, always looking for the next treatment, next medication that might extend the patient's life. Maybe only by weeks or months when mm-hmm. in reality what the patient wants is to go home. I think that even what, though what those doctors are doing 
has cruel consequences. I don't believe that they're intentionally cruel. They care about their patients. They want to extend their lives. Mm -hmm. But there has been a shift, uh, and there are several reasons for it, where more doctors are willing to recognize a time where we stop treating this patient's illness and begin to tend to them as someone who's dying. Court cases were part of that. The Karen Ann Quinlan case in 1976, she was in a permanent um, permanent vegetative state, and her parents won the right to take her off the respirator. Mm-hmm. And then Nancy Cruzan in 1990, her parents won the right to take her off a feeding tube, though she was in a permanent vegetative state. And then there was the Self-Determination Act of 1990. It went into effect in 1991, which really acknowledges patients' rights to make their own decisions about health care. It's the reason why whenever you go into the hospital, somebody has to ask you, do you have a living will? Okay. So attitudes have changed. And oh, also with the rise of the fields of palliative care and hospice, Mm -hmm. doctors still aren't necessarily good at talking to their patients about dying, nor are patients good about talking to their doctors, but there has clearly been a shift. Okay. The two main theological affirmations and biblical affirmations that I want Christians to hold in tension are, on the one hand, death is the enemy Mm -hmm. to be fought against. It's among the powers and principalities that Christ defeated on the cross, but that still is active in this world. And so we want our doctors, we want people who are around us to fight against death when it's threatening us or threatening the lives of others. But on the other hand, the opposite is true. The Bible teaches that we're mortal human beings and not gods. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, we are actually required to accept our mortality. So it's always holding those two in tension, and rather than following an absolute law to preserve life no matter what, we look at each case and ask, is this a situation where we're still to fight against death, or is this a situation where we have to admit this person's time to die has come, even if it's a very untimely uh, time for them to die, and then treat them with respect as a dying person. A lot of people turn to prayer when they're confronting uh, terminal illness or death. Can you talk about the role of prayer in preparing for death? I think it's extremely important for the person who's facing death, for the people who visit that person. I'm, we need to be able to pray with each other, pray alone. And I do support those people, and I think many Christians do, who want to pray for a miracle. That's just part of what we do as Christians. It's part of our tradition. But I get nervous if people look to prayer as if it's magic. If I just pray hard enough, the Mm -hmm. miracle will happen. Well, when the miracle doesn't happen, then it's your fault, you feel, because you didn't pray hard enough. So I'd like us to consider expanding what we pray for when someone is dying. And sometimes it may be the courage to face what's happening and the ability to find opportunities for reconciliation and confessing things that we've done that we don't feel so great about. Protestants don't have a very good opportunity for that. Mm -hmm. It confuses me when people keep wanting more treatment, saying they're waiting for a miracle. They're waiting for God to perform a miracle. And I don't think God actually depends on our medical treatment. That that, our praying for a miracle shouldn't influence 
how long we think basically fetal treatment should continue going. I refer to a very powerful story in the book of a woman who knew that the child she was carrying, if that baby survived to birth, he wouldn't survive much past birth. And she knew that. And she said she very much appreciated when Christian friends said, I'm praying for a miracle. But she said she couldn't do Mm -hmm. that. She said it would take the flesh and blood creating kind of, and bone creating kind of miracle to save her baby. And she and her husband just couldn't both pray for a miracle and prepare for being parents to a child that couldn't survive. But what was wonderful at the end of her comment, she said it's not that she doesn't believe in God's miracles. She said God's miracle has already happened for her son, hmm. that God in Christ Jesus Christ died for her son just as for everyone else. And the promise that death doesn't have the last word was for her and her son as well. Here's another question that we had uh, looking at your book. How do factors like race and disability affect the decisions people make about end-of-life care? I think it's really important for people like me who are pushing For us to talk more about death and to be more willing to accept that someone is dying when indeed they are, when it's clear that no more treatment is going to extend their life in a meaningful way, it's important for people like me to acknowledge that there are groups in society like people of color and people with disabilities Mm -hmm. who have very good historical reasons not to trust the health care system. So African Americans are less likely to have living wills Mm -hmm. than the rest of the population, not that enough of us have them already. People with disabilities are very suspicious. When someone starts talking about let's end treatment, uh, let's, let's move to palliative care only, Groups like African-Americans and people with disabilities are fearful and suspicious that, well, you're just saying that because you don't think my life is valuable. So I may not agree with the decisions they make to continue treatment, but I have to respect that they are facing a history of very bad treatment and neglect at the hands of the medical system that I haven't. Physician-assisted death is another thing you talk about in the book. And in cases of terminal illness, it's a very controversial topic, particularly for Christians. Can you talk a little bit about the theological issues related to physician-assisted death and then also tell us your own personal perspective? I think my perspective is in part revealed just by the fact that I call it physician-assisted death. Mm -hmm. Though initially the phrase was, the acceptable phrase was physician-assisted suicide, most people now who support death with dignity laws don't use that phrase because it isn't the same as suicide. Mm -hmm. A terminally ill person who wants to turn to the possibility of taking drugs to hasten death is not someone like most people who are suicidal who doesn't want to live. That Mm -hmm. person wants to live, but the possibility of living has been taken away by the illness. So they want to have the control in choosing when and how they'll die instead of letting the the illness take its course. Mm -hmm. So I am very much in favor of um, death with dignity laws. I keep thinking it's going to be raised again in New Jersey. The the groups in this state who were promoting death with dignity laws wouldn't do it as long as Chris Christie was governor because he would have vetoed it. Mm-hmm. We have a governor now, I think, who would pass it, but I'm not exactly sure where it stands in this okay. state. I do think that people 
like myself who are in favor of it need to be very respectful about the reasons why people are opposed to it. It's a very serious law that we're wishing to have enacted. And so if you look specifically at the theological reasons, there are Christians who argue uh, one, one of the first argues has to do with the uh, sovereignty of God that they invoke for being against it. God gives life. Only God can take life away. So that we should be there to tend to people, to support them when we're di- they're dying, but we can't decide when they're going to die okay. or help them do that. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I also acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but I think we're already pushing the limits of what may be God's will by continuing treatment for someone who is, in fact, mm-hmm. dying. And, yeah. of course, we're not just talking about continuing treatment, but actively helping somebody die. I think that choosing a more a death that has less suffering that doesn't mean terminal sedation can be a very humane way to be pastoral towards somebody who's dying and not um, not challenging the sovereignty of God. You point out that legislation was passed in the 1990s about advanced directives in an effort to help physicians and patients talk about death more openly. Do you think that has helped or worked in any way? It's helped, but not nearly as much as people sometimes think it has, and many of us wish that it had. It was the self, uh, the Patient Self-Determination Act, which was written in 1990, went into law in 1991, that, as I said, it recognizes patients' right to have a say in their mm-hmm. own um, treatment. Prior to that, it's sort of shocking if you look at the history of medicine. Doctors didn't tell people always that they were dying. And if you had cancer, they were going to treat you whether you wanted them to or not. It's sort mm-hmm. of amazing that we ever went through that. They can't do that now. A patient has a right to say no, has a right to a say in his or her treatment. But there's a misunderstanding about living wills. We should all have one. You can go online and find the one that's appropriate for your state and download it. But if there are all kinds of reasons why that might not help when you're actually dying. If you did that with a lawyer and it's in your lawyer's office and that lawyer doesn't know that you're facing death and nobody else knows it's yeah. there, it's not going to do any good. If you have it filed away somewhere at home and nobody knows where it is, it's not going to help. Yeah. And the main thing is if you've never talked to anybody about it. The most important yeah. thing is to have a surrogate decision maker who knows not only the boxes you've checked but understands your values, what you're the most afraid of and will help make decisions then when you can't any longer. So it is a legal document, but I still think people should think of it first and foremost as a means of communication. And you can't just communicate through the form. You have to take the time to talk to somebody who will have a very clear understanding of what you want. So it's helped, but there's a very low percentage. I didn't look it up. I think it's about 20% of the people in the country who have one. And that percentage has stayed constant for many years. Along with conversations, you know, about death and dying are the practices for funerals and burial and grieving. And you talk a little bit about how those have changed over the centuries. Can you, how have they changed? It's fascinating to look at funeral practices in the 19th century, where I think there was, uh, the things that people did made it easier to acknowledge that somebody had died and to let other people know that they had died. There were parlors in people's homes where the body was laid out. That's one of the reasons why there were flowers. It was to cover the stench of death that would have filled that room. 
Some of the practices seemed a little superstitious to put down, face down, pictures of other people so that death wouldn't see that person and mark the next person who would die. But there were still markers. You, uh, Queen Victoria defined how one, especially women, would dress mm-hmm. to show that they were in grief, wearing black for quite a few years, actually, if you were a widow. I don't want us to recapture those practices. Some of them were excessive, but now nobody wears black past the funeral. You're expected to go back to work or uh, back to your daily routines and to get not to express your grief so openly. So I think we could learn something from the 19th century in just being a little bit more public about yeah. I'm grieving and, and I, I need you to know that as you approach me and have a conversation with me. What can the church do to help Christians bury and grieve their dead faithfully? I would especially encourage pastors to mention death and dying in funerals, have church school classes, encourage people to come together and talk about it. Years ago, I encountered these two women at a church breakfast. I don't know why we started talking about death, but both of them, who were older at the time, said that for the first time in their lives, they found that they were afraid of death, and they'd never felt that fear before. But now Mm -hmm. that they were closer to death, the fear loomed larger. But what was sad is that they both said they didn't feel like they could talk about it in church because they were afraid that they would be judged as people who had little faith. Their faith was so weak that they were afraid of death. I want pastors and congregations to make the church the safest place you can find to talk about death so that if you're afraid, you should be able to admit it to people who would say, that's okay, we're going to have courage on your behalf. Or if you're fear of death is making you filled with doubt, then we should be surrounded by Christians would say, that's okay, we're going to pray and believe for you. It should be a safe place to say what we're afraid of, express what we most want, get help filling out a living will, all in the context of what we believe as Christians and in the context of the community of Christians who support us. My last question, um, I think, is something a lot of people struggle with. One of the hardest things for people to do when they're with someone who is grieving is to know what to say. Um, What are some helpful and maybe even some unhelpful things to say to someone who is grieving? It's a really difficult question, and I would begin by urging people not to be so nervous that they might say the wrong thing, that they don't say anything at all, that they try to avoid the person who's grieving because they think, I don't know what to say. But there are things that we can consider ahead of time that are more helpful than others. There are no right words that's going to make somebody feel better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it. We shouldn't go into a conversation with somebody who's grieving thinking that we can fix it. We can't necessarily make them feel better except to help them know that they're not alone. So some of the things I'd say not to say, I think it can be very sincere for someone to say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. But that phrase has been taken from us by politicians. It's just used too often in the public realm that it's come not to mean anything. So try to think of a way that you can say the same thing, but in a more heartfelt way. Mm -hmm. So someone could say, I will hold your name before God in prayer. Mm -hmm. And you've just transformed what you wanted to say into something that may have, maybe more personal, may have more impact. Often people seek comfort from death and dying by saying things like, death is natural. You think this is actually 
problematic? I do. It's not consistent with what I mean by saying that death is part of what it means to be mortal that we have to accept. The primary difference is those who use that mantra, death is natural, don't also accept that death is the enemy. So it leads to kind of a casual acceptance of death is natural, so what's the big deal? We just accept it. I quote in my book a denominational study that Tom Long in his book accompanied them with singing introduced me to that talks about it says that the death of an older person is beautiful it's like a leaf falling from a tree in the winter Mm -hmm. that's too casual an acceptance of death and it's actually not true my mother died one day shy of 90 with advanced alzheimer's it was time for her to pass away but there was nothing beautiful about it and certainly her death was far more significant than a leaf falling from a tree yeah There's a very popular thing for people to say now, everything happens for a reason. That makes me crazy. I don't quite know what people mean by that. You may believe that, but consider that it's not comforting to someone who just lost a child or a husband or wife or good friend. Mm -hmm. What reason could there have been for Mm -hmm. this person to have died? I think if we find that someone is truly asking, why did this happen? One good answer, I think, theologically and pastorally is to say, I really don't know why it happened. But I do know that God doesn't abandon us and that we won't abandon you, that you are not alone. And then finally, the one that I really would encourage people not to say is he's in a better place. My husband and I had a good friend who died very suddenly of a brain aneurysm, and at his funeral, the pastor said very specifically, the pastor answered that claim, he's in a better place, and he said, the best place for my friend to be is right here with me. Mm -hmm. And I know that when people say he's in a better place, they're affirming the hope that we have in the resurrection, that death doesn't have the last word. There is life beyond this de- this our deaths. But that's not comforting to someone who's missing the physical presence of somebody right yeah. now. It's hard to imagine that that person dying means they're in a better place than they were when they were with us, with people that they yeah. loved. So again, I would repeat, think carefully about saying whatever it is you're going to say in a heartfelt way, whatever comes out of your mouth. The most important thing is that the person knows that you mean to say, I'm with you. I want to help you make your way through your grief. And then just consider what might you, what phrases might you say, what things might you say that at least wouldn't do additional harm to the person. Yeah. And let them know that they are not alone in this horrendous grief. Yeah. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds, and by Sherry Osteen. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.